0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Yamanika
1: Saunders. And I kept repeating that. No, there is a white guy with chili cheese fries who's trying to kill me.
0: That and more. But before that, if you're not yet following us on social media, don't forget, we've got a lot going on on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Risk Show. We'll be right back. Folks, do you have a bad habit you'd love to break? Like vaping, overeating, or here's one of mine, doom scrolling. So not good for me. But listen, Atomic Griffin coaching can help. Do you have a good habit you'd love to make? Like exercising, reading, or meditating? Atomic Griffin coaching can help. Adam Griffin is a life coach with Atomic Griffin, and he'd love to talk with you about how he can help. Now listen, Adam is a very good friend of mine. We went to college together and then he resurfaced in my life in 2010 when he pitched the story Fantasy Farm, which is one of the all time classics on the best of risk number one. I've watched this journey he's taken of becoming a life coach, and it has been so inspirational to see someone really find their calling and just loving it, especially when that calling is helping people. And full disclosure, Adam is coaching me and JC Cassis, the business director of Risk, right now. We've both been so impressed. We've both been doing better i've already been personally recommending adam's coaching to other friends and all you have to do is set up a free discovery session and he has not one but two risk bonuses to offer you mention the show when you set up your free discovery session by using the offer code risk that's r-i-s-k and you'll not only get a free ask the coach question You'll also get 10% off your first coaching package. Why wait? To make your life better, simply go to atomic-griffin.com to set up your free discovery session with Adam. That's A-T-O-M-I-C-G-R-Y-P-H-O-N.com. And that discovery session is free. Atomic Griffin Coaching Folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Surprise Chef, behind me now, and this is the best of Risk number 29. I always recommend people share these best of episodes with newcomers. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Yamanika Saunders, and before that, Brian Kett, but right now we're about to hear fancy feast fancy told this one at a risk live show this year in philadelphia and she has a new book out called naked on sex work and other burlesques so without further ado here's fancy feast now with a story we call connected
2: In 2020, I learned that doing phone sex work requires many of the same skills as long-form improv storytelling. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going to be amazing at this. (laughs) I was living in Brooklyn with three roommates and my cat during the pandemic, and a third of my income had gone away. So the third of my income that I make from doing burlesque and performing in nightlife was just evaporated in an instant, and my laptop was 10 years old, so I needed some money. The other two-thirds of my income, the stuff that I was keeping, was from my day job as a therapist. Working as a therapist during the pandemic in New York, boy, uh, nothing to say about that. It was, I was not able to escape reality, which was the thing that I wanted to do most in the world. Uh, instead, I was really helping people cope with the here and now, helping to integrate the traumas that they were experiencing. And so I didn't get to do the, like, I'm just going to rewatch all the shows that I loved in the 90s. Like, there just was none of that in my life. And anything that was a surprise was unpleasant. I don't know if you remember that phase of things. It was like anything that was good was planned and predictable, and then unpredictable shit would happen, and it would be bad. So I was missing novelty. I was craving entertainment and, most of all, escapism. So when my friend was like, yeah, I started doing phone sex work, I was like, okay, me too, great. Um, And I opened a profile, and I was absolutely delighted by what I found there. So I wanted novelty and I got it. So (laughs) whether I was playing multiple characters in an immersive law firm orgy role play, (laughs) it takes all types, or I was asked to um, pretend in a scene that I was like being picked up at a farmer's market and the guy who picked me up, like the caller, spanked my ass raw when I went home and tried to refrigerate the tomatoes. Car- a cardinal sin, you never do it. Or um, I had a caller, a conservative older man from Texas with whom I played out a transformation fetish. So turning him into a socialist cross-dressing witch. I was like, yes, I couldn't have made this shit up. This is fucking gold, incredible. I, I was, I was like, okay, I I was really hoping to get involved with like a niche fetish community because I feel like that's, it's like consistent, that's where the money is, you know. And so week one, a guy like sent me uh, 50 bucks and was like, hey, would you pretend to be a robot? And I was like, would I? So (laughs) I ended up doing a lot of robot fetish work, which was fantastic because not only did I not need to be a therapist in Brooklyn during the pandemic, I didn't even need to be a person and that was perfect. Did not want to be a person. So uh, it felt really good to give other people that special fantasy space. And I got kind of addicted to it. I got addicted to the money. The money was excellent. I was outstripping my uh, therapist wages. I was able to, like, got the laptop in a fucking second. It was not a problem. And I could just focus all of my energy into becoming the perfect shape for the other person. Just contorting myself around whatever these fantasies were. And that was regardless of what the fantasies were, by the way. So whether what these callers needed from me was, you know, to be their perfect whore or uh, the spoiled little bitch or their daughter or whether they wanted me to tell them, like, my dirtiest secrets, as if I have those, or to, like, ask me if my parents were safe or just to tell them over and over again that I loved them until they fell asleep. And... I was like, oh, the men are not well, but there was no, t- <laughs> no time to dwell on mental health because I had another caller on the line. So it was just that kind of, that fun little roulette. And uh, my next caller that day was like a little shy. And so I started with one of my lines, sort of one of my typical, like, hey, thank you so much for calling. Like, tell me what's going on. Like, what are you thinking about tonight? And he was like, hi, my name is Noah. This is so weird. Am I really just supposed to like tell you what turns me on? That feels like kind of gross. Like, is that okay? Like, I'm just going to tell you what gets me off. And I was like, Noah, it would be weird if you were calling Old Navy customer service to do that. <laughs> but I'm a phone sex worker and that's exactly the name of the game. So like hit me, what's going on? What turns you on? So Noah was a cuckold. And I don't know if any of you have had the pleasure of playing with a cuckold. It's so much fun. So cuckolding fetishes is when somebody has a fetish for being in a relationship with a dominant woman who cheats on them and fucks other guys and doesn't fuck them. Fun. It's, it's a very, it's an intellectual fetish, you know, it's something that people like to sort of twist around. It's like a very sort of, um, it's like a fetish that derives from something that is not done, like an absence of an act. I just find that very interesting. And I clearly, I love cucks, so my best friends are cucks. I've dated them, you know, whatever. So I was like, this is fantastic, I'm totally in my wheelhouse, like we're gonna have a really cute time. People wanna know, does phone sex turn me on, like as the, as the provider? And usually the answer is absolutely not. I am playing Candy Crush, I am online shopping. Uh, truly most often I'm taking notes because I wanna make sure that I'm meeting the customer's needs. I, you know, I spent seven years in retail, like you meet the customer's needs. But this time was different, and I was feeling my body react, and we come up with a scene together that was pretty low-key, I would say, for like, the things that I'd seen, like the robots that I've been. This was <laughs> this is a, very, this is a very sort of reality-based one. So at some point, like, he was on his knees in front of me in our fantasy together, and it was like I was there. I was feeling my body, feeling that strong, powerful way that you feel when a man is on his knees in front of you. And I I told him, I was like, you know, I want you to crawl towards me so that your nose is pressed up against my pussy so close that you can fucking smell it. And I want you to understand what other men get to fuck and they don't even have to try hard to do it. And you never will. How does that make you feel? And he said, it feels right but it also feels like my chest is being crushed. I feel like I'm going to die. And I said, so die. <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he came, which was great. That was a great choice. <laughs> he, was, he was a submissive. It's just, you know, it's just, it's improv with your clothes off. Um. And, and after somebody comes, that's usually where, where calls end, right? Like somebody, they come, they hang up. Or if they're really polite, they stick around to say thank you and then good night. <laughs> but he was, he was sad, he was in subspace. Um, so that's like a sort of far away, like sometimes, yeah, sad, upset, like you've had endorphins and then they drop. So he was feeling really small. So we kept in a scene. I was still in the room with him as far as he was concerned and I was like, and now I'm going to the kitchen? and I'm getting you a glass of water. And he was like, no, that's my move. I go when I get the glass of water. And I was like, okay, Noah, so we're both going to the kitchen and we're both getting each other glasses of water, which is impractical, but very nice. (laughs) And that made him laugh and we broke out of the scene and we kept talking. We started talking about Ray Bradbury short stories. He was a big sci-fi guy. And I am am too. I'm a big sci-fi guy. And so uh, we talked and, and chatted until he was like, oh shit, my money's about to fucking run out. And so like, you know, 45 minutes after he came, we hung up. And the next morning he sent me a giant tip and was like, thank you, that was so much fun. Like, let's do that again. And we stayed in touch and kept chatting and had phone calls that were several hours long, several times a week. And I found myself logging in thinking about him, wanting him to be there. And I would be so disappointed on the days where I just had like just my shit guys and my fork guys and then my daddy and my choky blowjob man and whatever. And I'd be like, I was like, where is he? And I was judging myself for that, too, because I've worked in the sex industry for many, many years, and this is, like, a thing that you do not do. I was like, look, I'm the dominant woman, I'm the professional, why am I pining after this little sub, why do I want him to call? I'm supposed to be the one with the boundaries, I'm supposed to be the one who's, like, who has that professional remove, and yet there I was thinking about him. So one day at the end of our, our phone call together, it was, like, a Saturday and it was snowy and there was just nowhere to go. And I was like, hey, hey, Noah, I have a personal question. Where do you live? He was like, Baltimore. I was like, uh-huh. He's like, where do you live? And I was like, New York. And he's like, uh-huh. And we sat there in the silence thinking about the train ride between the two of us. I was like, Noah, you know, how would you feel if we met in person? Like, I want to, I'm protective of the fantasy space. I'm protective of what we've created together. And I'm worried that if you didn't like me or I didn't like you, this whole thing would just be ruined. We wouldn't get to have this. But maybe that would be worth just meeting each other and seeing. And he sounded unsure. So as it turns out, people who get off on their own inadequacy sometimes have self-esteem issues. (laughs) Boop. And he was convinced that I was just playing him like a fiddle and that he was like every other sad sack, poor guy who falls in love with a stripper. And there was nothing I could say to convince him otherwise. What would you say? I was like, no, Noah, you're different. Like, oh, I know I say this to all the guys, but I really mean it with you. Like there was just no way that I could say like, whatever you're feeling is real, I'm also feeling it. I think we should figure this out together. He just, he wouldn't, he wouldn't hear it. And that was sort of twisting him up in his anxiety and in his sexual shame and not in a fun way, like not in a way that was fun to play with. And then one day I logged into the site and I saw that he had deactivated his account and had done so without even saying goodbye to me. And I didn't want to lose a good thing. I had been single for a year. And during the pandemic, that was very single. Like no one had even touched me outside of my cat. You know what I mean? And this was something that felt alive. So I was like, "Uh uh-uh. So I sent a message to his defunct inbox. And I was like, you know, hey, I think probably this fucked with your head. And because of the roles that we're each playing in each other's lives, it's really hard to be candid. And I'm sorry if this messed up your mental health or your self-esteem or anything like that. But I I can't tell you, like, I'm feeling this. I really want to be in touch with you. I want to keep this going. And then I committed the cardinal sin, right? I sent my actual phone number, not the dummy number. Something that a sex worker, right, is not supposed to do. He called me the next day. And I'd spent so long in other people's fantasies that I had forgotten that I was really working on a fantasy of my own. And, like, my stomach flipped when I saw that it was his area code that was calling me. And I was already well into imagining, like, telling somebody the story about how we met. You know what I mean? That it's like, oh, yeah, how did you guys meet? Oh, high school, that's cute. Yeah. Uh, So Noah was my phone cuck. You know, a cuckold. Well, so he pays me to make him come and cry while I talk about fucking other men. You know, when the chemistry's there, it just feels right. Um... But talking to him brought that fantasy into reality very quick. He is still him. I was still me. The chemistry was still there. It was it was fun, and we were like, let's not talk about sex. We talk about that a lot. And as we're trying to figure out each other in the real world, like let's talk about the opposite of sex. Like what's the least sexy thing? So we talked about podcasts, and <laughs> and then he like made up. I don't know if you remember the movie Room, where it's like it's like a. A very sad movie about a girl who gets kidnapped and lives in a single room. We came up with the sequel called Room Two, Too Much Room. Ha ha. This is like a Roomba character. Anyway, whatever. He's funny. So we were we were making each other laugh and we made plans to talk again because we were both gonna clean our apartments the following day. So we're like, why don't we just keep each other company while we're cleaning our apartments? And I was already like, I'm gonna meet his mom, you know what I mean? This is, I was picturing, like, cause it wasn't just the sexual fantasies and that's the dangerous thing, right? It wasn't just like his mouth with my spit in it, it was also brunch. If you're fantasizing about brunch, you know you're pretty far gone. <laughs> Noah didn't call on Saturday and he didn't respond to my text when I followed up And in fact, we didn't talk for months until I contacted him about an essay that I wrote in my forthcoming book about him, which I needed to get his approval for, for the legal department so I wouldn't get sued for libel. Really, I was very excited to have a reason to reach out again. I sent it to him, he wrote back right away. He'd read it at his desk at work and it made him cry. He loved it and he had no idea that my feelings had been that profound and that I truly had meant every word that I'd said. So we talked constantly that month, another flurry of phone contact, nearly falling asleep with each other on the phone. And then he blocked my number. So my fantasies (laughs) imagined that his shame, the shame that we played with sexually was staying compartmentalized, but in reality it had spilled out everywhere. And that I had become a thing that he was ashamed of. I still think about Noah. I'm with people I date, Lots of people now, and they all have a much healthier relationship to shame. Much more fun to play with when it's in a nice little box. But I do still think about him. There's something that feels really unresolved about, about what happened, and I'm kind of haunted by the ghost of what isn't, what wasn't. And so I'm reminded that most phone sex calls end abruptly, and if you don't keep the meter fed, the fantasy is going to stop. So sometimes, despite your best efforts, you are simply disconnected. And then you are left to tell yourself the rest of the story. Thank you. Want to have phone sex? It's emotional. I'm emotional.
3: One of my favorite places to share a fantasy is on the phone. With someone I don't even know. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? I'd like to share my most intimate secrets with you. Call 1-800-HOT-LIVE. 350 per minute, adults only. Make your fantasies come true. Call right now.
4: Hey. When I was 24, I left my position as a science teacher at a high school in Chicago. And that career that was like the safe route, but I decided to go back to grad school and to get my uh, my degree in creative writing. So from like public education to the arts, I can really pick careers that really pay very well. And all my friends at the time, they had these very, you know, like lucrative, esteemed careers. They were like executives and analysts and small business owners and... The night that I left my position, I went out to a bar with my friend Eric. Eric's in medical sales. And we were sitting at the bar just to grab a beer. And these three very fancy businessmen came up to us. And they all looked kind of like Mitt Romney, but with like (laughs) variations of more teeth right one to the next they look like the kind of guys who would say that they really love the outdoors and then they would pose for a photo like with a tiger that they had shot and so they started talking to us after they ordered and they asked eric what he did for a living and eric told them that he was in medical sales and they were just elated they just clapped him on the back and everyone talked about like bootstraps and pulling yourself up by them, and the american dream and all that But I was so apprehensive and anxious and nervous because I didn't know how to interact like with professionals of that caliber. And then they said, well, what do you do? And by default, because this is what I had always said as an adult, I said, well, I'm a teacher and they got so quiet. It was like I told them I had like a terminal illness or something, but then I caught myself and I said, oh no, wait, actually I left that position today. I'm I'm going back to school. I'm getting another degree. And they became so relieved and they're like, oh, good for you, son. What are you gonna study, is it finance? And I just took a sip of my beer and I said, no, actually, it's creative writing. And there was another pause, another silence. And then they just started laughing, like in my face, just hard, like tears streaming down their faces, gasping for air, just like, can you believe he just said that? Just looking to one another. And they told us to have a good night, and right before they walked back to their seats after they got their drinks, we talked a little more to them, right? And the first guy goes, Well, I happen to be in commercial real estate. I'm like, Okay. And the second guy said, Oh, I sell gravel. I'm like, Okay, I don't know what that means. And the third guy happened to be the CEO of Red Stripe Beer. The Jamaican beer company. They went down for a business conference. So after we said our our little bit, they told us theirs. They're like, have a good night. And right before they left, the CEO of Red Stripe, he opened up his wallet and he took out a Jamaican dollar bill and he handed it to me. And he said, you're gonna need this more than I will. And surprisingly, this had like a really negative impact on me. And so I guess the next time you're thinking about ordering a Red Stripe beer, maybe don't. And so all of that said though grad school was fantastic okay it was wonderful i learned how to write i learned the structure of english i analyzed literature i amassed this big portfolio of writing samples it was wonderful in this supportive and collaborative environment and during grad school i started a tradition for myself where every sunday when i was doing my work i began listening to what became one of my favorite shows on npr it's a show called wait wait don't tell me so okay um if you're not familiar Wait, wait, don't tell me. I'm glad some people know it. I adore it. It's a comedic news quiz show where every week these like celebrity panelists who are humorists, they recap the like world events from the previous week and it's hosted by the amazing Peter Sagal. There you go. It's witty. It's fun. It's charming. It's 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 everything. And like it kind of feels like talking to a neighbor of yours who's way smarter than you and you still (laughs) want to be friends with them anyway. You don't you don't load them for that. And so to me, the show really just embodied the power of writing to cause, you know, just laughter and to create community just through humor and getting to sit there and listen every week to these professionals who had degrees in creative writing just being successful, it made it all seem possible and I cherished it. And I didn't miss an episode for two years. And then at the end of grad school, I started feeling this pressure because I was gonna have to get a job, right? And all the writing positions in Chicago, they were very dry, they were very corporate. They all involved like transcribing, notes from board meetings or writing press releases after you transcribed notes from board meetings and the future felt very bleak but then one sunday morning i was sitting i was listening to wait wait and they made an announcement they were looking for an intern and this internship could lead to full-time employment and i was like well this is it i'm gonna apply i'll get it and then uh, I'm gonna dazzle everyone, I'll get promoted, then my life's gonna change. When I will go to all these fancy literary parties around the city and I'll meet all these fancy celebrities who will then like, quote my jokes back to me without knowing that I was the one who wrote them. This is gonna be wonderful. And so I applied and I felt really good about my chances until the following week when I was listening to the show and they said that they had received 2,000 applications <laughs> for one internship, unpaid internship position from all across the country, they received these. And I crumbled. Right? I was like, there's no way I was gonna be able to stand out amongst all of that. Right when I was about to turn off the radio, Peter Sagal said, and this episode was recorded at the Chase Bank Auditorium in downtown Chicago. And I was like, well, wait a minute, they're in Chicago. I'm in Chicago, right? These 2,000 people aren't, like I can go plead my case in person. I wasn't done yet. And so I printed out some of my favorite writing samples and I put them in a manila envelope and I didn't know who to address it to or what to write on the outside, so I just took a Sharpie, and on the outside, I wrote, Fragile enclosed our dreams. That's all I did. Terrible. Not my best. And I went down to the Chase Bank Auditorium the next time there was a recording and it was packed with people. And I fought my way through this crowd and I came up to this volunteer. This man looked like a big egg wearing glasses. And I said to him, Hey, I'm Brian. I applied for the internship. I really want to give this a shot. I think this would help if I got my writing into the hands of a producer for the show. It's in this envelope. Can you help me? This guy looked at me and he said, Every single one of us wants this internship. If you leave your envelope with me, I will personally see to it that it's thrown in the garbage." So it wasn't gonna work. It's not ideal. So I'd have to get creative. But luckily, I was about to graduate with a degree in creative writing. And so the following day, I went down to Navy Pier. It's on Lake Michigan. It's where NPR is headquartered in Chicago, okay? And I went down there with my envelope, with my packet of materials, but they wouldn't buzz me in because I didn't have an appointment. And I was so frustrated by that, and I've since realized it's a pretty good policy, just not to have an open (laughs) door like that. So I waited by the delivery entrance for like an hour until the UPS guy left. And when he left, right when the door was about to close, I grabbed it, and I ran inside, and I just thrust my envelope at the receptionist, and I said, can you please get this into the hands of anyone? Wait, wait, don't tell me. And he looked at me kind of confused, and then he kind of raised his eyebrows at the fragile and closed heart dreams, and that was all I could do. And then two weeks later, they called me. They had read me. They loved me. They wanted to interview me. And I was like, oh, my God. God, this is happening and the only actual interview I had had to, up to that point for like a career position was for my teaching job and they kind of just gave me that once they found out I wasn't on parole that wasn't a high that wasn't a high standard and so I, I googled how to tie a tie and I got back on the train and I went back down to Navy Pier with my packet and I was buzzed in this time no UPS guy needed thank you and this producer started showing me around she started showing me around like I already had the position She's telling me about the architecture of the building and the history of everything. And oh, that building over there is such and such as we walk by these big windows. She showed me where the bathrooms were. That's pretty serious. And then she showed me where the cafeteria was. And in the cafeteria, there was one person eating lunch. It's a man named Brian Babylon. He's a comedian in Chicago. He is so funny. He's one of the panelists on Wait, wait, don't tell me. Okay, he's one of the coolest people I've ever crossed paths with. And he was sitting there eating lunch by himself and the producer said to him, Brian Babylon, uh, hello, good afternoon. Uh, this gentleman here, pointing to me, is interviewing for the internship position. His name also happens to be Brian, just finding any common ground, I guess. And Brian Babon looked up from his sandwich and he said, wait a minute, your name's Brian too? And I was like, yes, you know, not knowing where this was going. And then he turned to the producer and he just said, hire this man. And he went back to eat. And so I was like, oh my God, this is happening. Like This is mine to lose. So she led me over to the office area of this kind of headquarters. And there are all these desks in this perimeter facing away from one another. And in the middle was this round table. And she said, well, you can sit in Peter's chair because Peter isn't in today. And that's Peter Sagal. That's the host of the show. They just called him Peter casually. Like they're out of like a barbecue. And so I sat in his chair and just touching greatness. And I immediately started to panic because all these other chairs with these producers in them spun around and all these people wheeled their chairs over to the center table, and this interview just began. And immediately, I felt like I was back in that bar with those businessmen, just unable to to relate to professionals of this caliber, and I started shaking. I was so nervous. And one of the producers was eating baby carrots, like little carrots, and he took this massive bag of them and he put it right down on the table and he said, well, you can have some if you want. And here's the thing. I'm not a carrot guy, right? Like, they're fine. I don't seek them out. I don't dislike them. They're just sort of there. But I thought, okay, here's a pretty good opportunity for me to show them that I'm a regular guy who just eats carrots, just like them. Like, look how much we have in common. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll have some. And I put my hand in the bag and I wanted to take one. But I was so nervous and my hand was shaking that I touched like 15, 20. And immediately I'm in a situation, I'm in a predicament, because if I take just the carrot that I wanted, okay, then I'm touching food and leaving it, and then I'm a gross person. I'm not going to get this position. But if I take this monstrous handful of them, then I'm greedy. So five seconds in, I'm, I'm stuck, and I think, OK, well, greediness is better than uncleanliness. So I take this monstrous handful, and I don't want to hold it. So I just start housing it. I'm popping them in my mouth as fast as I can. Interview hasn't started. And one of the producers turns to me, she kind of smiles, and she says, wow, you must really like carrots. And I should have just explained the situation, they would have understood. But instead, I, I, I doubled down and I said, uh, me? Yeah, what you gotta know about me is I love carrots. And then as though to prove it, I took another handful that was just as big. And I didn't wanna have two handfuls, so I shoved the first handful, the rest of them, into my mouth and I'm crunching and it's so loud. I can't hear a thing. They're talking, I'm nodding, and smiling around the circle, okay? The train is going off the rails. And then all of a sudden, this woman looks at me again, because she says something, and I missed it. And I said, oh, excuse me, after I swallow a gigantic mouthful, and she goes, so what do you want to do with your career? That's the question. That's an easy question. That's a softball, right? That's like interview 101, because that was my chance to tell them everything, like what their show meant to me, and to tell them that I wanted to create community and affect change through humor and all these things but I was so nervous, and I couldn't stop thinking about the carrots. (laughs) That all I say to them, and her very easy question of, what do you want to do with your career? My response is, quote, I like creativity. That's all I said. And these words just hung out there, okay, in between us, and they were silent. Like, who are you? How did you get in here? Like, I can't even imagine what they're thinking. And to fill this silence... I finished the rest of the carrots, and I'm like, well, I need, I'll I'll go, I'll get get more. And so I I put my hand back in the bag, I was just going to take one, but then I thought, well, wait a minute, if I take fewer carrots this time, they're going to think the first two times were some sort of mistake. So I took another monstrous (laughs) handful, just for consistency, and I'm sitting there holding all these, trying to eat them, and another producer very mercifully keeps the interview going, and he goes... All right, well, what are you struggling with right now? You know, I think he was talking about the interview, to be honest in hindsight, which is what I should have said. But I wanted something like witty and fun, something fitting of like, wait, wait, don't tell me, something that Peter Sagal would really appreciate. And after the longest pause that's ever taken place in an interview, all I said was, well, at home, I'm working on a pretty tough crossword puzzle right now. That's not funny? That's not witty. That's just words that just came out of my face. It was terrible. And they stared at me. And then I didn't know what else to do, so I got yet another handful and I held them up and I just shoved them into my mouth like a raccoon, like going through a dumpster. And you would think to have made this many mistakes that I was there for half an hour, it had been five minutes. Five minutes after I sat down, they said, well, thanks for coming in. And I said, thanks for the carrots. That was my response. And I stood up from Peter's chair, it's Peter Sigel's chair, and I looked at the table, and the bag of carrots was empty. And all the producers gave one another looks that said, we will never stop talking about this. A <laughs> Couple weeks later, sitting at home, I'm working, I'm drinking tea, when uh, I get an email from the show, and they were so very sorry to say that they could not offer me the position, which is shocking, I know. But it was heartbreaking because the dream job was there and then it was it was gone. And this took place eleven years ago and I still kind of carry it with me. It's kind of just a part of me. And today, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not in commercial real estate. I don't sell gravel. I don't work at a very mediocre beer company, but (laughs) I have carved out a career as a writer and as a storyteller, even if it wasn't with wait, wait, don't tell me, right? Though I would love to pitch, you know. Call me. But here's the thing. I've been able to carve this out and able to do this just because a couple months after this catastrophe happened, I got another interview with an advertising agency in Chicago. And I got that job. And I got that job because I learned so much from this experience, this this bleeding out over oh, down in AV Pier with with, the, with those producers. You know, I, I now knew so much more. I knew to stop overthinking things, and I knew just to kind of trust myself, and I knew to kind of let some things go, like I knew myself so much better. So when the recruiter asked me right before that interview, you know, would you like anything to eat, I just looked at her and I said, thank you, but absolutely not, thank you.
3: up. farmers are out there working very hard in the fields to grow all these
5: vegetables so eat everything on your plate. Eat it. Eat it.
3: Don't you make me repeat it. Don't you make me repeat it. Don't you make me repeat it. Farmers grow all of these things? You bet.
1: Oh my god, I love all the white guys that were up here <laughs> t- telling their stories of white privilege like it's a fantasy. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for me. You save me. So, I was 19 and I was doing stand up in Los Angeles. Really excited about it. <laughs> so, I started when I was 16 in high school. And my mom used to take me to do stand up because we're in a trauma bond. <laughs> so, when I was 19, I would go with her to the comedy store and I would wait on the line and pick a number, hoping that I would get a number to perform the following Sunday. One Sunday, my mother was like, I'm not going to be there. You're going to have to take yourself to the comedy store, which I was thrilled about because that meant she was going to be out of my hair and I could be wild. I was a bit of a nerd as a child. My favorite thing to do was tell everyone that I knew Comedio dell'arte. Arte. <laughs> <laughs> so I was... 19, still kind of like a 15 year old because my growth had been retarded by my mom who kept babying me and she was like, you're gonna be in the big city by yourself and I'm gonna be away for the weekend and so I'm giving you $20 to take yourself to the comedy store, go stand in line, make sure you take this $20 and you park in a parking garage and don't park on Sunset and pocket this 20 bucks because it used to be free to park on Sundays (laughs) on Sunset. So obviously, I pocketed the money. (laughs) And I parked on Sunset, and I had 20 extra dollars to hustle around, and I went to go put my name on the list to see if I could get a number to perform the following Sunday at the Comedy Store. Now, I had done that many times. I had picked a number because I'm one of God's favorite children. I would always get a number. And then this particular Sunday, there was a white guy, ooh, ooh <laughs> who was sort of talking to himself off in the corner. He was very shaken and disturbed and having a meltdown. And because I am someone who loves people that I can trauma bond with and also have narcissistic personality disorder, I was drawn to him like a lightning bug. And I asked him what his problem was. He was weird and he was white. (laughs) But he was interesting to me. He had on a shirt with the alligator. He looked like a Best Buy nerd, but I didn't know about Best Buy then. And he was saying that he was upset because he's come to this open mic constantly and he's never gotten a number. And if he doesn't get a number this week, he's gonna give up his dreams of doing comedy. And so I said, well, you shouldn't give up your dreams of doing comedy. So if I pick a number, which I knew I probably would because I had the touch, I'll give my number to you. And that way you can perform next week doing comedy. And he was like, sure. Are you sure? I was like, <laughs> he said, are you sure? Like Lassie was going to come around the corner. <laughs> He's like, Are you sure? You know, and I was like, yeah, you can have my number. It'll be fine. So he goes, and he picks a number, and he gets a blank ticket. So that means he's not going to perform next Sunday. And I go about three after him, and I pick a number, and I ask the guy if I can give my number to my new white friend who's a weirdo. (laughs) And he said yes. And so I told him he could have my number. It was like number seven or eight. And so that's his placement to go on next Sunday. And I said, God has blessed you, right? This was before I started having sex and I was a virgin, so everything was God, God, God. (laughs) And he said, thank you. And he said, I'd like to take you to dinner to thank you for giving me your number. And I said, oh, that's very sweet. You know, I'm a big girl, I like to eat. (laughs) And I was like, when are we gonna have dinner? (laughs) And he was like, we can have it today, he says. You know, I'll take you out to dinner, and we'll have some fun. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And I was like, I don't want to move my car because I'm parked on Sunset, and it's free. And I got this 20 bucks from my mom, and I'm going to sneak and buy some BDs later (laughs) to smoke. And he was like, Hey. And he was like, you don't have to do that. He was like, I'm also parked on Sunset and I can move my car and I can take you to get something to eat and then I'll drop you back off. And I thought it was fine. I mean, he was a white guy (laughs) and I was a big black girl. So what could he do to me? So we got in his car and I remember before we took off, he said, do you want to smoke something? And I was like, well, I only smoke cigarettes but I don't tell my mom (laughs) and he was like, well, I have cigarettes. He's like, but I have to roll them. And I was like, okay, because I'd seen people roll cigarettes before. So I was like, fine, you can roll a cigarette. And I kind of sat out this way, his car was facing this way. And I kind of sat out just like, you know, vibing with the music and having a good time waiting for him to give me a cigarette. So he smokes a little bit of a cigarette and then he gets it to me and I just start puffing away trying to be like super mature you know because I never had these chances to have that experience. I grew up very very sheltered and very Christian. So I'm smoking, I'm smoking and then after about 7 or 8 pulls I realize I'm not feeling right. I start to feel as if I want to go to sleep. And I asked him, is this a cigarette that you gave me? And he said, well, it has a little something extra in it. And I said, oh, I've never had anything extra. I'm starting to feel very tired with this thing that you gave me. And he said, well, it's okay. He says, I smoke some, too, and I'll take care of you. At this point, I'm trying to get out of the car, but I'm finding it very, very difficult. So he comes out on his side and he goes around and he grabs me by the hand to pull me up. And he says, I wanna show you something. And I was like, okay, what do you wanna show me? He's like, let's look at my trunk. He goes behind to the back of his car and he opens his trunk and he has chains and he has a hammer and he has a saw and he looks me in the eye and he says, we're gonna have fun with these things and I got a chill in my body because I thought to myself, my God, this guy is going to murder me and it's all because I smoked something that I didn't know what it was. And at this point, I could not regain control of myself and I started to go deeper and deeper into rolling in and out of consciousness. And all I knew to tell him, because he was insistent that I get in his car to now go have dinner, is that I was very, very hungry, which is, I mean, nobody's gonna laugh here at this point because you're all terrified, but being a fat bitch saved me. Because he believed that I was hungry. And right on sunset, there is a restaurant that sort of looks like a uh, train car and it's called Carney's. And I would go in there and I would have chili cheese fries every Sunday. So I said, oh, my God, I'm so hungry. If you could just, you know, we'll go have all the fun you want and we'll do everything. I said, but I'm no fun if I don't eat. And he believed me and he said, "Okay." And I said, well, we can just go right here to Carney's, and I can get some chili cheese fries and then we'll go and we'll have a great time. And so he agrees, thank God. And we go up into Carney's, we walk up the steps, and as we're in the line, I'm still kind of like rolling in and out of consciousness. And the guys there all know me because I always order chili cheese fries. But they see me with this white nerd and they think I'm about to get lucky because they're all like, hey, yeah. And I'm trying to show them with my eyes that I ain't fucking with this dude. But none of them realized that, except for a little white boy in front of me who was talking to his father and he says, Daddy, this lady, she looks like she's not okay. And I had never been so happy to see a little white boy <laughs> In my life, and I went to reach for him because he understood. And his father said, Don't talk to her, turn around. And I thought that was my last opportunity to get away from this nutcase who was buying me chili cheese fries. Then I remembered that there was a bathroom and Carney's. And the good thing about this bathroom is that. While you're inside, it looks like it's also inside, but it's actually not. You have to walk outside and go downstairs and then go up to get into the bathroom. So I told him, I said, listen, I have to go to the bathroom. You got the chili cheese fries. And he's kind of nervous that I'm trying to leave him and that I'm aware of what's happening, even though I'm trying to pretend that I have no clue what's going on. And he says, well, I'll go with you. And I said, no, you don't have to go with me. I can go by myself. I said, it's right there. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to go to the bathroom, and I'll be fine. So he lets me go, and I go towards the door, and I walk out, and I go downstairs, and I'm trying to run as fast as I can, but it's very difficult because this, whatever he gave me, is holding me down. And I'm in and out of the street on sunset, and there was another white man, (sighs) who walks towards me and he reaches for me and I'm like, oh my God, I can't deal with another white guy right now. And so he says, are you okay? You're walking in the street. I said, no, I'm fine. I said, please just don't touch me, I have to leave. And he said, no, I, I can help you. You seem like you're out of it. I said, no, please, there's already a white man trying to kill me today. And he said, there is, and he's looking because he thinks I'm hallucinating a white guy who's trying to murder me. And I said, yes, I have to get, I have to go up. There's a place, there's a place I have to get to. Now, I was trying to travel up to where all the comedians hung out after they did the lottery, because it's about 20 or 30 of them that hang out, having a good time, and I just wanted to be somewhere where people would know me and could help me. And so I told this man, I said, if you could just please help me walk to where there's gonna be comedians. I am a comedian, and He does, he walks me to this place where all the comedians are hanging out and he asks them if they know me and a few of them had recognized me and they said yes. And he says, well, she's been wandering in the street and I'm nodding and I'm all kind of drowsy. And one of my, who becomes one of my friends later on, Zorba, sees me. Now Zorba is a big black guy and he's like really friendly and I never really had a conversation with him but we'd always say hello or hi or something like that. He says, well, I can help her. Just leave her with us, we'll take care of her. And so I'm sitting there and I'm nervous and I'm shaking because I wanna get away. And I keep telling Zorba, I said, I have to go. I just, if you could take me and get me away from here, I can't stay here somebody's coming. And so all of the other comics are laughing because I just like a young girl who did drugs for the first time and has no idea what I'm doing with myself. So they're like, oh, she's just high, just leave her alone, give her some water, she'll be fine. And I go, no, there's gonna be a white guy with chili cheese fries trying to kill me. (laughs) And I kept repeating that, no, there is a white guy with chili cheese fries who's trying to kill me. And they're looking at me and they're laughing. And Zorba pulls me to the side and he says, listen, what is going on? I said, I smoked something and I promise you that there is a white man coming down here and he's gonna have chili cheese fries and he's gonna try to kill me and I I don't wanna go with him. And he says, you don't have to worry. There's no white guy with chili cheese fries and I'm gonna stay with you until you come down from whatever high you're on. And so we sit there and we sit there and I'm shaking and I'm nervous and I'm looking around and I'm just praying that he doesn't come up. And sure enough, five minutes later, here comes this white guy and I'm excited because they think I'm a liar. (laughs) But I'm scared because I think he's going to convince them to take me with him. And so as he walks up and he has the fries in his hands, but they're covered up in foil, he goes, come with me, come on, I have your stuff. And Zorba says, hey, he goes, you're a white guy. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, yes, he is. And he goes, what's in that in your hand? And he was like, motherfucker, it better not be chili cheese fries. And sure enough, he opened it and it was chili cheese fries. And Zorba said, if you don't get the fuck out of here, I'm going to beat your ass. And then all the other comedians were like, oh, my God, we're so sorry. There was a white guy with chili cheese fries trying to kill you. So I was high for like six hours and Zorba stayed with me every step of the way making sure that I was okay and he never took advantage of me, he was very sweet, I got to hang with him yesterday. He is a good friend who has saved my life and so the following week we're at the Comedy Store. And everyone is pretty sure that this guy is not gonna show up, but he does. He shows up, and when it's time for him to go perform on stage, he has a ukulele. And for three minutes, this fool plays the ukulele on stage, and I was like, I was about to get killed by a white nigga playing a ukulele. And as he got off stage, I went to walk towards him and I remember all the comics were trying to hold me back and he said, no, just leave him alone. I said, no, this guy terrorized me and I want to confront him. And so I walked up to him and I looked him in his eye and I said, I don't know what the fuck you thought you were doing last week, but what you did made me super nervous. And I want to know how many girls have you killed? (laughs) And he looked me in the eye and he said, you'll never know. So as I stand before you today at the age of 44, I say, thank you, Lord, for all you've done for me. Thank you.
3: The world. I wish I was special you're so very special oh
0: This is Risk. This is Scary Pockets behind me now. Scary indeed. And we just heard from Yamanika Saunders, who you can find on Instagram, at Yamanika. Before that, an interstitial all about eating it by John LaSala, who was inspired by Brian Kett's story called Please and Carrots, that's P-L-E-A-S. And you can find Brian on Instagram at Brian Kett. We'll be right back. We're back. Folks, we are all about those winter holiday story pitches now. Do you have any fond memories or tragic memories or ridiculously bizarre memories that took place around about the end of the year? Maybe you were seven years old. Maybe it was last year, maybe at Christmas time, or celebrating Hanukkah, or New Year's Eve, or maybe just some winter wonderland sort of experience. Send us your pitches! Everything you need to know about how to pitch us is at risk-show.com submissions. And folks, if you're anywhere near Minneapolis-St. Paul, you cannot miss the phenomenal storytelling show, Asterisk! On October 12th. It's in association with Risk, and it's a benefit for Risk. TikTok superstar Zerman Zane, who has gone by the name Ernest Anfin, when telling his classic stories on Risk, will be hosting, and Risk Superstar Amy Salloway helped produce the show too. Come on out, Twin Cities. It's called Asterisk. It's on Thursday, October 12th at 8 p.m. at Bryant Lake Bowl and Theater. And for tickets, go to risk-show.com live. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a remarkable story that Heather Farley shared at a Risk Live show in New York. But before that, another one shared that very same night. So here now is David Drake with a story we call... Lunch cats.
3: But I'm a creep. I'm a creep. I'm not know the way. Oh no 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 What the hell am I doing here? Oh I don't belong here I don't belong here But I'm a
5: I wrote this story uh, 10 years ago, and uh, I stopped telling it because I, um, I, it didn't really have an ending. I just kind of fumble around, and it, it's kind of bleak, and uh, people just kind of be sad, and then I'd go. And uh, that's no <laughs> way to have a good time, so I, I stopped telling it. But then recently, uh, something happened when my daughter was born. And I was like, ooh, maybe this could be the ending. So we're gonna try that out tonight. And uh, hey, if it fails, just, uh, it'll just be a bad podcast. You know, what are you gonna do? But we're gonna give it a shot. All right, this is the story about the time I gave a C-section to a cat. Uh, this is a great story because I have a degree in creative writing. So already we've established stakes. I, I don't know what I'm doing. The short setup is, uh, after college, me and my friend Mike wanted to do some community work, but we don't know anything about how to do that or where to start. Uh, Luckily, we had a friend, uh, Claire, who we went to high school with, and she was trying to set up a program in Thailand uh, that works with schools, raises money for schools, paints, libraries does that kind of thing. And she's like, do you guys want to be a part of this program? And me and Mike were like, yes, of course, that sounds amazing. So we fly into Bangkok and we're in Bangkok for four days and then Claire comes in to meet us and something happened within those four days where she lands and she's like, hey, the program kind of fell through and we can't work with schools anymore, but it's okay. I found this guy on this island. He works on this vet clinic they have a big stray cat and dog population on the island and they just need a lot of help neutering and spaying all of the cats and dogs, which is so different <laughs> than working with children. <laughs> I don't even know if I agree with that. Spaying, I've never met a dog I didn't love right away. Have as many dogs as you want. If anything, I would, there's so many people I would neuter before a dog. My friend Joe, he's 38, he eats food all gross, and he's always hooking up with these 20-somethings in bars, and then he tells me about it, and I I get all the horny, and I bring all this dark, horny energy back to my family and my daughter. (laughs) Neuter Joe and Joe. Million people. My parents, all right, listen, my parents have been in love and attracted to each other and together for 30 years. And uh, sometimes they'll be in my apartment and I'll just catch them look at each other and they're just staring into each other's eyes. And I'm like, get out of my apartment. <laughs> Gross. I walked to my parents four times. Three of those were when I was a child, which is fine. Cause when you're a kid and you walk in into your parents, you don't even really see like, you're, you see shapes, and your brain's like, don't, don't even worry about this, and then you kind of black out, and you live your life. But then the fourth time was uh, this last summer. Yeah. Where I was visiting my mom and dad, and I was making a sandwich in the kitchen, and then I heard my mother scream from upstairs, and I was like, oh, no, mom's in trouble. And then I ran. I ran to my, my, I skipped stairs to get there. I burst into my mother's room and she was fine. She didn't need my help at all. In fact, that would be discouraged in my family so uh well we're in thailand so i guess we'll be vets so we go to this island it's an eight hour bus ride where uh the seats they reclined all the way back which come on people don't deserve power like that i was sitting on an eight hour bus ride and then an old woman's face entered my i was like this country is fucked. like If this happened on planes, the world would be on fire. This is not allowed. Eight hour bus, four hour boat, and now I'm a vet. And and there was no process, they're just like, here you go. And so I started with basic checks on animals, which I hate doing. You have to take their temperature, you stick a thermometer in a dog's ass, which I don't know if you've ever tried to suck the joy out of a dog. That's a pretty nice, easy way to do it. Dogs would come in, all happy and dog, and then I would stick a thermometer in their ass, and I actually watched a dog question its worldview for the first time, where it's like, hey, I'm a dog, and I stuck it in, and he's like, oh, I never knew my father. I get the ball, I bring it back. What's the point? Yeah. But like all nightmares, you do it long enough, it becomes normal. So, about a month in, I'm a veterinarian in Thailand. <laughs> and this woman, she comes in and she brings in her hot cat. It's like, <laughs> it's, <laughs> this guy was a heartache. Awesome body, okay. Listen, this isn't, nothing weird about this. You see enough ugly cats, you start to appreciate a good, whatever. Brings in her hot cat, she puts it on the desk. And she's like, ah! She speaks Thai. I'd never learned Thai, so that's that to me. I was like, oh, something's wrong with the cat. <laughs> she's like, I oh, no. I was like, oh, I see, the cat's pregnant, you gotta get the kids out, we can do it. So I bring the cat back to the veterinarian and he opens up the cat and I see the inside of a cat for the first time and it's purple throbbing tubes. And I'm like, oh man, life is a nightmare, wow. <laughs> We're all tubes. He cuts open one of the tubes, and he pulls out four beautiful baby kittens, and uh, he washes those off, and he hands them to me, and then he sews up the cat, and then he's like, hey, you just rub these all over the cat, which is, I guess, something you have to do when you give a C-section to a cat, because C-sections are not natural to cats. They don't give them to each other, so... <laughs> Like, if they don't see themselves give birth, they don't believe that these are its children. So what you have to do is you have to trick the cat into believing that these are its kids. And the way to do that is you you have to rub the kittens all over the cat so that they have the same vibe or whatever. (laughs) I'm not a vet. So... I'm rubbing cats on a cat for, like, a long time. There was no specific time given to me. I'm just rubbing it. it looked like I was erasing a cat with other cats. <laughs> I'm just rubbing them. Like, is this enough time? I, I guess. And then I put the cats next to the cat so that they're the first thing that she sees uh, when she wakes up, and then Papa's going to lunch. Because <laughs> you gotta eat every day or else you get a headache and you get angry at your friends. So me and Claire, we go to lunch and we have a really nice time, and then we come back, and uh, Snowball, uh, that's the name of the cat, she has eaten two of the kittens. So we take the two remaining kittens away, we have them away from Snowball, and uh, we're like, what do we do? Because they, they do need to eventually be with Snowball because that's where they get their nourishment, That's how they live. So we have to think of a way to introduce them to Snowball and get her to take them in as her children and recognize them as her children. And the way you do that is you put a kitten in, and you hope. Please, God, let this be the kitten that you just (laughs) think is yours. So we did that. We put a kitten in, and Snowball started to lick it, which is confusing because it's like, that's cat behavior, but that's also ice cream behavior. Is this good? Is this food? But sure enough, Snowball did kill and eat them all. (laughs) So yeah, that's where the story used to end. You can kind of imagine how people would be a little upset. (laughs) So that was the end of the story, and then I came back to America, and I wrote the story, and I left people unsatisfied for a decade. But then something happened during the birth of my daughter, which changed it all. My wife was in labor, we're in the hospital, and in walks a nurse's assistant, and the nurse's assistant is Claire, the woman who brought me to Thailand. And I have not seen Claire in 12 years. In fact, one of the last times I saw Claire was when we were delivering these lunch cats together or whatever. I was like, holy God, it's Claire. And she brought fears out of me that I I don't think most expectant fathers have. Like, oh no, will my wife eat the baby? They put the baby on my wife and I was like, you gotta really rub it in there because she hasn't eaten in like a month or whatever however long you gotta prep for this. But the most shameful thought I have, the thought I'm most embarrassed of, is when Claire handed me my daughter, my sweet darling baby girl for the first time. And I looked into her deep blue eyes for the very first time. My first thought was, finally, I have an end to this bit. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)
0: and that is the point at which mr pooh sinks one of his fangs as deep as he
6: Okay. By the fall of 2014, I knew my second marriage was over. The fighting had become vicious, and by the end, fighting was all there was left. So when one night after a particularly explosive incident, I told him to get out and take his filthy cat too, he did. Also taking our one shared car, but I was pretty content with the way that wrapped. So that was that. We had left my home of 15 years in Brooklyn, and it was really an Irish exit. We'd gone back to our mutual home county of the Berkshires. Even though I was back home, I hadn't really interacted with any of my old friends. I hadn't made any new ones. He was all I had, and he was gone, and I knew there would be things to be sorted out. I'd have to find a new place to live. I'd have to get a car. I'd have to get a job. But that would all happen in time. I was first going to just let the dust settle and enjoy this apartment that felt like Shangri-La compared to the basement in Williamsburg. What I loved best about this place, I mean, besides the fact that it was pretty nice, was that the downtown where it was located was a ghost town at night. So if I wanted to crank my tunes and music was really always such a safe space for me in a difficult time, I could and I did so I just kind of got lost in the sound and figured you know come what may I'd handle it when a U2 album was released that September to iTunes unbidden and magically showed up in my phone I I couldn't remember buying it I was broke and I'd never been a mega fan but i was the right demographic and i was like okay new album i'll i'll get behind this not realizing that this was the most reviled (laughs) um you know kind of musical release ever but but i was about it so i started listening to it over and over and over again and i was always one to parse the lyrics of songs you know they were always all about me and what I was experiencing at any given time. On that album, it was the track Every Breaking Wave. The lyric in particular, Baby, every dog on the street knows that we're in love with defeat. Are we ready to be swept off our feet and stop chasing every breaking wave? And I thought I'd been swept off my feet the first time I got married. The second time I got married, I was wrong. So one Sunday night, it's around midnight, I learn that U2 is in the city, New York City, promoting this album. I knew what I had to do. I had to get here. Because Bono and I were to be wed on the top of the Empire State Building. The fact that I'd been diagnosed with bipolar earlier that year and had stopped taking my medication earlier that summer was neither here nor there.
3: <laughs>
6: so I threw on my pristine white trench coat. It was the closest I had to marital attire. And I remember my ex had taken the car, but I figured I would just walk out of the house. First one I saw, I'd hop in, I'd get behind the wheel, I would head to New York City, nuptials, etc. So I did. The fact that there was a car parked directly next to my building with the keys in the ignition felt like a sign. (laughs) So I got in the car and I turned the key and began to drive. I turned up the radio, Bruce Springsteen was on, he was not my paramour, but he would do in a pinch. And the journey had begun. I was pulled over 15 minutes later. I probably was not driving as well as I could have under other circumstances. I was very excited. I had a place to go. So I knew enough to remember that this car did not belong to me. Um, I was closely connected to that fact of life. But I thought maybe I could just eyelash my way out of it. I could flirt my way through this, and there wasn't much of a plan, but I... Roll down my window, officer approaches. I notice his name is embroidered on his uniform. And I say, officer, may I see your badge? Killing time. And he points to this embroidered name, and I said, that's not what I asked for. I wanted to see, like, a metal badge like I'd grown up seeing on chips or so. I don't know what I had in mind. And it occurs to me that maybe he's not a real police officer. And maybe... I'm in danger. So I roll the window back up and I gun it. Starting a 50 mile, 70 mile per hour, high speed chase down route seven of Berkshire County, a very sleepy part of the world. Every time I passed into a new township, a couplet of cruisers joined the parade I'd begun, <laughs> blue and whites flashing, and I was not stopping for anything. I wasn't even going in the right direction of New York anymore. I don't know where I was going, what I thought I was doing, but I wasn't stopping until the sheet of spikes they'd laid down in the road <laughs> stopped the chase for me. So, at that point, I kind of had surrendered to the reality of the fact that, you know, I wasn't going to get any farther, at least not immediately. Officer approaches, short exchange. What I remember is that the rest of the battalion that had been following us were all laughing. And I didn't see what was funny at all. So they cuffed me and they put me in the back of the cruiser. I was very slender then. I wasn't taking great care of myself. And I somehow managed to pull a Houdini, (laughs) wriggle out of my cuffs, toss them in the front seat through the divide and say, you're gonna have to try harder than that. I mean, I was... Um, So I spent a night in jail and was taken to the local hospital where I was put on a cocktail of medication that would change my life forever, for better, because I never knew how sick I was. Remember though, we have the matter of Grand Theft Auto to deal with. So any true crime fan knows that less than 1% of people plead insanity, defendants in the US plead insanity, Of that 1%, less than 25 are successful. I sat with my lawyer. We decided we'd give it a shot. I met with a forensic psychiatrist. I'm a big Law & Order fan. This was exciting to me at the time. I was still not quite back grounded yet. I remember at the end of the interview asking him, I said, so do you think I was insane? You know, do you think this is going to work? And he looked at me and nodded and smiled and said, yes. (laughs) So I went to court and the judge, I stood by my lawyer the judge kind of shuffles through the papers pursuant to my case looks at my lawyer, looks at me I don't remember exactly what he said but my lawyer smiled at me put his hand on my back showed me out of the courtroom and I was free. No fines, no community service, no record, no jail time, no shame. People have subsequently asked me, psychiatric professionals, counselors, whatnot, if I remember what happened that night. And I guess it's not atypical for someone experiencing a psychotic break to not remember any of it, but I remember all of it the stars in the sky, the feeling of excitement, the laughter, and that is a blessing and a curse.
5: Heather
0: Farley, everyone! Holy cow! For a first time storyteller, that is something else. Wouldn't it be wild if if it turned out that like it's a totally different story and has nothing to do with all of that, but Heather is currently betrothed to Bono.
3: <laughs>
0: we'll have to have her back for that one because it takes a lot more explaining.
3: Uh- <laughs> um, 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 um. Um. One the In the
0: In the Well, that is almost all for this, the 29th Best of Risk compilation. This is the Soweto Gospel Choir behind me now. After the commercial break, we heard David Drake, who you can find on Instagram at David Drake Comedy, followed by a pussy tastic interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And then there was that remarkable story by Heather Farley. You know, I am so proud. That we've been able to feature stories on the show about people who got proper treatment for their mental well being. When I told Heather we'd be including her on a best of episode, she wrote back, I'll be honest, when I first got out of the hospital all those years ago, I wondered if I'd ever laugh out loud again, make a new friend, live independently, realize any. Of my dreams and one aspect of my desire to share my story was to hopefully highlight that the choice to embrace treatment doesn't deaden creativity or personality or promise today I'm a homeowner with an amazing circle of support I laugh so hard it hurts on a regular basis and being on risk was itself a dream come true Thank you for the platform to do this. Thank you so much, Heather. And to everyone else, remember you can support our continued ability to do this by becoming a member over at patreon.com slash risk. We very much truly really do need... (laughs) the support of our listeners there don't be a bystander normally people think yeah everyone else will do that there's enough people i don't need to pitch in but no we need everyone on board and if you want to make a one-time donation that is at paypal.me slash risk show we'll be right back On next week's episode of Risk, Richard Munchkin's professional gambling career takes him all the way to Russia and the Chechen mob. But that's next week. (laughs) And folks, today is the day. Take a risk.